Judges chapter 13. If you're grabbing Bibles and turn with me there. Judges chapter number 13. Tonight we look at Samson, specifically a lesson on separation as we might entitle it. And uh, Judges chapter 13 will be turning to a couple different passages as we get into our message this evening. And again, appreciate you being here this Sunday night. And we look forward to what the Lord has for us. Children, we will have some candy available for an answered question at the end of the service. Um, actually, Brother Tony will be doing it tonight. It'll still be my office, but I'll be... Uh, practicing with the men's choir and so brother tony be handing out candy we want him to get full exposure to children since one's on the way okay and so give him your worst no just kidding don't do that but no he'll be asking the questions and uh you know, see him there in my office like we've done in the past sundays that would be fantastic and so listen carefully and uh glean some things and grow thereby it has wisely been said that you and i can learn a lot easier from the failures of others than to make our own failures. And in other words, looking at someone else and learning to, from the mistakes they, they made. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I love being the baby in the family because I could watch my brother make mistakes. And I could learn from him and I could say, wow, that didn't go over well. I'm not going to try that. <laughs> he got nailed for that one. I'm not going to do that. And, and honestly, well, it was very much a blessing. And so it is in life, young people. It's good for you to watch other people's lives and learn from their mistakes. Learn from the wrong decisions that they make. I sure am glad that God does not expect us to be trailblazers when it comes to falling into sin and making wrong choices. We don't have to be trailblazers, pioneers in the sense of that. Many of the stories of humans found in the Scriptures that are given to us, uh, really they're given to us so that we might learn how they have erred. We might learn from then as to how they had made wrong decisions, and then you and I are now to go and do right, to choose differently as we might put it that way. Certainly Samson, we all know him well. He's one of the poster children for this truth. His was a miraculous conception. Tonight we won't read about that story, but it was a miraculous conception. As a child, we see that he had a motherly consecration. And then, sadly, his life would be considered a failed sanctification. A failed sanctification. See, in Judges chapter 13, if you were to look at verse 5 there, we are told in the pronouncing of his coming birth, that he was going to be a Nazarite unto God. The Nazarite vow, we'll get into it here in a moment, we'll expound on exactly what it necessitated and it commanded, but the Nazarite vow was one of a handful of pictures in the Old Testament that picture well the principle of sanctification for all believers uh, that we are called to in the New Testament. So if you think about it, this Nazarite vow is a great picture looking ahead, as there are several in the Old Testament. Uh, It's a picture of sanctification in the New Testament. How you and I are set apart unto God and set apart from the world, as we might say. We'll speak more of it in a minute, but it does us well to understand that while Samson fulfilled and maintained his sacred vow to God, he performed amazing feats, amazing acts. In chapter 14, in verse 6, he, he tore up a lion as he were tearing up a small goat. Now, I readily admit I have no practice in tearing up small goats, okay? Maybe some of you do, and uh, but you can imagine how that would be, a small baby goat, if you might picture it as such, a kid. And literally, he took a lion like you may take a small animal, and if you were to rip it apart or tear it apart, so he did to the lion, right? Amazing, amazing strength. 
In chapter 15 and in verse 3, we have one of the instances that I would love to see on a big screen. He captures 300 foxes. Now that in and of itself is a pretty good feat, isn't it? I never caught one, one, let alone 300. Ties their tails together and puts a torch in it and burns down all the, uh, the fields of the Philistines. The corn and the olive, the vineyards and things as the Bible tells us. That's quite an amazing feat and empowered by God and as he fulfilled that vow. In chapter 15, verse 15, one of the stories he's well known for, he kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Pretty amazing. In chapter 16 and verse 3, we, we hear and read of the story where he tears off the gates of the city of Gaza and carries them away. And heavy gates, tremendously heavy, and yet he carries them, tears them down and carries them off all of by himself. No doubt in his day as he committed these acts, these feats of, of strength, as he is known as in this day, no doubt in that day he was probably known as the strongest man alive. Have you heard of Samson? That, that, that Jew, he's a freak of nature. Did you hear what he did? And, and boy, the strength that man has, that's, that's rather uh, uh, unnatural. Or better put, it's supernatural. So he was known for that as he is in our days. And yet, though he was humanly strong, a simple analyzing of the life of Samson, we come to understand that he was spiritually weak. Spiritually weak. He could never tame his flesh. Those lusts and desires of the old man that war within each one of us, he could not tame them. Each one of us needs God's help to resist and to restrain the flesh. And yet Samson repeatedly gave in to those carnal lusts, those fleshly lusts and appetites. And what was the result in his life? Well, it led to captivity and tragedy. Now, may I just say this evening, friend, that if you and I, hey, young person, you give in to your flesh and your own desires and lusts, it will lead to captivity and it will lead to tragedy. Paul said, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. What he's describing is this. Either you control your flesh or your flesh will control you. You will be a captive to it, or your flesh is a captive to you. You say, hey, listen, flesh, I, no more am I going to do just what I want. No more all these desires and lusts. I'm not going to live by those and fulfill those. No, I'm going to live unto God. I'm going to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. Yet, here is where Samson failed. How he lived caused the blessing and restraining power of God to be lifted. Look at chapter 13. Look down at verse 24 now. We'll receive his birth, and we'll just really, in a sense, get into his life just a tad bit um, this evening. And the woman bare a son, verse 24 of chapter 13 of Judges, verse 24. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and notice the statement, and the Lord blessed him. The Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtel. So here we have a simple picture. As Samson kept the vow, God was able to bless him and use him, even giving him grace to restrain his flesh, uh, to keep the old nature suppressed, to deny it, as we might put it this way. As he remembered his consecration and his vow and set himself apart to God in his heart and mind, God helped him to do what he was called to do. Um, 
You know, reality is this. Here's an important truth and mark it down. I'll try to simplify it a little bit from what I even have written here on the screen. But as we strive to set ourselves apart into God in our mind and heart, and that's always where it starts. It has to be a decision of the will. It has to be a decided moment where I said, okay, I'm going to be set apart into God. No longer am I going to live into myself and the, the flesh in this world. I'm going to be set apart into God. And as we make that decision in our heart and in our mind, a decision of the will. God helps us to see it accomplished in our lives through giving us the strength and grace to deny our flesh and our old sinful nature. Maybe I could just simplify it with this statement. Sanctified living leads to strengthened restraint. Sanctified living leads to strengthened restraint. See, as I live a life that is set apart, a, a godly life, even as much we talked about this morning, uh, one that is uh, living perfect with a perfect heart before the Lord, I'm smack dab in the little, middle of God's will, I'm following His Word, I'm, I'm desiring to live in such a way that's set apart to God and from the world. The fact is this, that then, in that moment, God gives me strength to restrain the flesh. Well, you know this statement, it's from Scripture. Draw nigh unto God and He will what? Draw nigh to you, okay? Part of that, the reality is this. Once you decide that I'm going to set my face to God, I'm going to be set apart unto Him. As I draw nigh to Him, He draw nigh to me. That means that I have His presence with me. And can I tell you, Christian, there's a whole lot of power that comes with the presence of God. So as you attempt to live that in such a way that denies the fleshly lust and desires, boy, it requires that you and I are walking with God. That we have His daily presence to experience and enjoy, and I am empowered by His presence to deny my flesh. And it gives me the strength and the grace to mitigate, to restrain, to resist the old flesh and the sinful nature and the world at large and Satan, our enemy, as we talked about this morning. Great truth. And so we've got to understand the concept here of even displayed and demonstrated in Samson's life. We know it well. When, when he didn't practice his vow, boy, God's restraining power, his presence was not with Samson and he fell flat on his face, didn't he? So crucial that we understand the importance of being separated unto God, sanctified, set apart unto Him. So, as we read here in verse number 5, that He was a Nazarite unto God, that He took the Nazarite vow, what really does that mean? Turn with me to Numbers chapter 6, and we'll rest here for a little while and uh, uh, for the message this evening. Numbers chapter 6, let's look at verse number 1, if you will, with me. We have a description. God has given it here, and Moses explaining it to us. Numbers chapter 6, we are told exactly what is the Nazarite vow. Very important. Notice that verse number 1, Numbers chapter 6. Here are the things that... Uh, Samson was called to separate from. And, and as it is a picture for you and I, so we want to understand what are some things that we are to separate from as we separate to God. Verse number 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to a vow, or excuse me, to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. Now I want to stop you right there. I don't really want to remind you in the New Testament, every believer is called to separate themselves unto God. 
Every believer is called to separate themselves unto God. It is a New Testament concept presented to you and I as the church that we are to separate ourselves unto God. In our living, in our thinking, in our every aspect of us, we are to separate ourselves unto God. And so here's a great picture of it. It doesn't mean that you and I are supposed to become Nazarites, okay? As you read what the Nazarite vow is, that'd be a little crazy, wouldn't it? And uh, that's not what it's saying. It's a picture, though, of separation. Look at verse number 3, if you will, to, with me. He shall separate himself from wine and... And strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels even to the husk. What do we have here set before us? Uh, simply a separation from all that pertained to the vine, especially that of strong drink. What was the meaning behind it? Well, it wasn't just about alcohol and everything else, though so we'll hit on that here in a moment. The reality was this. It was a picture, a representation of being separated from what the world offers as false joy. The things the world looks at and says, ah, this is what brings joy. This is what brings happiness. This is what makes life doable. This is what makes life copable. Uh, I don't think that's a word, but it means to cope with. Anyway, uh, I just invented it. Okay, anyway, so the, the world says, hey, look at this. These are the things you need as a person to live life. Literally, the Nazarite in that day was called to separate from these things. Whether it was the grape juice, or it was strong drink, or even the grapes of that day. If you notice, he said even dried, so raisins were off limits. Whatever the case was, that for those people pictured the artificial and short-lived joy humans were granted from stimulants throughout history. Okay, what are we saying through that? What's the point of it? Well, these things mentioned were used as part of grand celebrations. They represented literally joy and fulfillment and, and just, oh, boy, we're going to have a celebration. Oh, we've got to have grape juice. Or for those uh, uh, who were after strong drink, hey, we're going to have a party. We need strong drink. So it was a picture of the world's stimulant uh, of joy, of happiness, from which the, the source from which they believed it was derived. Even at the wedding of Cana. That was a great celebration, and grape juice played a big part in the revelry there. Doubtless for many, as we see throughout scriptures, especially pagan nations, strong drink and alcohol played a big part in people's uh, celebrations. As a stimulant in different ways, a stimulant for better feelings, to feel better, to uh, even during regular days was the case. The point of the vow was that someone set apart from, to God, now get this, the point of this part of the Nazarite vow was that a person set apart to God doesn't need outside stimulants to make him happy, to give him joy, to produce good feelings. He only needs Jehovah. You don't need anything else to feel good about yourself, to cope with life. And Christian, can I tell you, the principle is pretty obvious. We as Christians, we don't need alcohol. We don't need illegal drugs. We don't need artificial attractions and stimulants to give us joy, to make life more bearable, to make it more doable, to help us cope with all that life brings our way. My friend, we only need Jesus Christ. Now, let me encourage you. There are a multitude of stimulants out there. Be careful. The world wants to prescribe anything and everything. 
for depression and anxiety and everything else. Now, I'll tell you right away, I'm not a doctor, and I know there can be imbalances to chemicals and things like that. That's great. Talk with your doctor, but be very careful, Christian, before you take antidepressants. A walk with God is the best antidepressant. Getting in God's Word. Again, if you have a chemical reason for it, okay, talk with your doctor. But I'm just telling you right now, there's a whole lot of people popping pills to cope with life when they need a walk with God to cope with life, to deal with it. Be careful. You and I are supposed to be set apart unto God. It isn't a knock against you if you have to take some medication or whatever the case may be. Just be careful. Be careful. We all know well that the world's answer to many things medically is just to drug us. Just to drug us. Oh, you can't pay attention? You need a drug. In my day, they, they applied a drug. It was to the backside. And I couldn't pay attention. But anyway, be careful. Be careful what the world says for us. You see, part of walking circumspectly and of being wise as serpents and harmless as doves has to do with you and I understanding that the world is no friend to the followers of Jesus Christ. We live in a time like no other in which artificial attractions and worldly stimulations are designed by Satan to lead God's people astray. In the world we live in, there's much pressure from the enemy through advertisements, through products offered, and even through other people. We are surrounded by it. And boy, isn't Satan good at packaging sins so seductively that it often makes them very difficult to resist? I mean, we know, most of us know what Budweiser means. We know uh, different brands of alcohol. We know what op- opioids are. We, we know what drugs, marijuana are. Boy, Satan has gotten it out there, hasn't he? He is a master advertiser. Just today, it was funny. I think we were sitting in our house, and she'll get mad at me for saying this, but she's outside with Ryan, so she has a long way to run to get me. Um, <laughs> My wife was on her phone, and I was sitting there across the, uh, the kitchen. She was checking her Instagram, and all of a sudden, she used one of my patented phrases. I like to go just go around using biblical terms and say, cursed be this, cursed be the day. that." Anyway, so she, all of a sudden, she goes, cursed be Dove Chocolate. Their advertisements are too good. So I'm not saying chocolate is a stimulant. Don't take it wrong in that sense, please, okay? I, well, you know what? I think many of the advertisers in the world learned from Satan. Because they do a good job. Because Satan is the master advertiser. He knows how to package things and show it off so that it even looks good to you and I as Christians. Hey, young person, let me encourage you. Okay, Way too often, too many Christians know all the Budweiser commercials and beer commercials. Yeah, quiet as a church mouse. They sure are funny, aren't they? Statements made, things said, and little jokes here and there. And boy, we try to use them when we pick up on them all the time. What are we doing? Desensitizing ourselves to the things that the devil wants you and I to partake of. See, he's, he's masterful in this sense. He's a great advertiser, deceiver. That is who he is. Now, we must set ourselves apart from the stimulants of the world that go against scriptures. And it is clear that such a one of those is alcohol, as it's mentioned here. Now, we do not say that it is because it's just mentioned here. Let me again reiterate the Nazarite vow as recorded here in Numbers chapter 6. That was for Jews. It isn't for us today, but it is a picture of the principle of what it means to be set apart unto God. 
It, it teaches us truth about how to be separated into God. However, throughout the pages of Scripture, the Bible is clear that alcohol and liquor is not something a Christian should have any part in. The Bible clearly describes alcohol and liquor as a mocker. It is raging. It is deceptive. It leads to destruction. And it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. That is not a good friend. That is not something that you and I should be in close proximity, have any association with. Now, I'll tell you, the world is always behind God, but every once in a while, they get it right. Just a few weeks ago, this blew my mind. Just a few weeks ago, researchers came out with a study. They were honestly reluctant to publish it. It was an extensive and lengthy study. It is one that much time had been put into. It covered just a wide gamut of the subject matter. And many news articles, surprisingly, many news stations covered it. And the title of many of those news articles, or even on TV, the title of it was simply this. Now, this is pretty amazing. This is the world. This isn't a Christian research company. It is the world saying this. Here is the title of it. No amount of alcohol is good for you. That was the result of this great study. And all these articles reporting on it said, listen, hey, we've come to the conclusion in even analyzing studies that had been done before and finding them to be bogus in many different ways. And uh, there's sets of those who they examined and interviewed and everything else. And it came to this conclusion. Here's a couple of the points. Number one, they said this, drinking alcohol leads to seven kinds of cancer. Just, just drinking it at all leads to seven kinds of cancer. One doctor, in their summary explanation of what the study said, made this statement. Notice this, this quote. The conclusions of the study are clear and unambiguous. Alcohol is a colossal global health issue and small reductions in health-related harms at low levels of alcohol intake are outweighed by the increased risk of other health-related harms, including cancer. Hey, can I tell you, the world is catching on to what the Bible has always said. Alcohol is not good for anyone. It's not. See, a lot of people would like to, as a Christian, well, you know, just drinking socially a little bit, it's not going to hurt you. And look at look at this study that says oh, alcohol actually does you a little good. Can, can I tell you, this study looked at all those and said, ah, no, that's wrong. Those supposed health benefits from drinking just a little bit, they are far outweighed from a medical health perspective by the dangers and the harm that alcohol causes. Can I tell you, Christian, alcohol is one of the few modern stimulants that the Bible speaks clearly and directly to. Not just through principle, but it speaks to it. And yet Satan has tried to muddy the waters, hasn't he? He's tried to convince Christians, oh, it's okay to drink a little here, it's okay to drink a little there. And, and one of the ways he has done it, by the confusion over the word wine. See, a lot of people want us to read. Every time we read the word wine, it means strong drink. And so then when, when Jesus Christ changed it uh, into uh, the water, into wine, he changed it into a strong drink. They want to deny the obvious proof that the word wine is used both for grape juice and for strong drink. And context will tell you the difference. Now, you know what we just read? You may not have noticed it, but one of the verses we just read is one of the strongest proofs for this. Look again at verse number 3. Notice what it says. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. 
Can I tell you right now in that one verse, it shows us that wine can be used for grape juice. It can be used for a fruit of the vine as it was. There are some passages in the scripture where the word wine is even used to describe grapes. It is used to describe the, the, the juice coming right from the grapes. It is a wide-used English word. If you were to look up Webster's 1828 Dictionary, it will list several times over the word wine is used as strong drink, it's used as grape juice, it's used as the actual grapes of the vine. Can I tell you, my friend, that is why we can stay in un, and affirmedly, we can tell you, the Bible speaks against alcohol. It speaks against strong drink. If there's ever a time in which the Bible condones the word wine, I can guarantee you it means the grape juice. Study it. I have. I have books all about it. I've read them through and through, cover to cover. I'll tell you, my friend, I stand assuredly to tell you tonight, alcohol is something no Christian ought to touch. Okay, So let me encourage you. Not only is it alcohol, but there's other stimulants that you and I have to uh, avoid. Stay away from it. Not because Pastor Henry says it, but because the Bible says it. Know that even the world has to admit that it's not good for you. That's a big step for them, isn't it? I mean, you think about that. Budweiser doesn't like to hear that. Title of a, a an article going around, no amount of alcohol is good for you. Okay, that's not a good advertising campaign for them. It really isn't. But praise be to God, someone had the guts to publish it. The truth. Can I tell you this evening, any amount. So don't try to excuse social drinking, drinking in moderation, or other any, any form of compromise. Any amount is not good. Separate yourself unto God and Jesus Christ, which includes separating yourself from harmful things that this world wants you and I to pursue to obtain joy and happiness. Come on, we see the billboards. You've probably seen some commercials. What do they say that beer brings? Happiness, joy. Drug dealers want you to think, boy, that's the greatest high you've ever had was uh, taking marijuana, taking opioids, taking some kind of drugs. No, my friend, the greatest quote unquote high I've ever had is understanding that Jesus Christ died for me and putting my faith in him. It is an irreplaceable feeling of joy. No drug, no alcohol, nothing this world offers can ever replace that. That's true joy. Knowing that one day I'm going to heaven, not because of anything I did, but because of Jesus Christ. See, the world can't offer anything like that. So be careful, Christian. Don't get caught up in what they say. Here's how you obtain joy. You don't need them to have joy or to be happy. During the great Welsh revivals, a tremendous revival, many people were saved. There were places and cities in which uh, bars and other places were shut down because of what God was doing. During that revival, there was a notorious drunkard that was saved. His life was changed to such a degree that all who met him knew that he was a new creature in Christ. The owner of a local pub was very dismayed and sorry to lose one of his best customers. So one day he was looking out the window and he saw that uh, this gentleman walking by, that establishment, that pub, that bar. He went out to the street and he said, Hey, hey, what has gone wrong, Charlie? Why do you keep going past instead of coming in like you used to? Charlie thought for a moment. And then he replied simply this, Sir, it is not just that I keep going past. It is rather that we keep going past, Jesus and I. I tell you, that convert, he learned that faith in Christ unites us to the living Christ. 
That His life flows through us. His Spirit indwells and empowers us. And we are to be set apart to Him, doing only that which pleases Him. And so it calls you and I to separate from some of the world's stimulants. Some of the things they say, hey, here's what brings happiness and joy. No, I don't need what the world offers. I have Jesus. And He is all I need. That was part of Samson's vow. That part of the Nazarite vow. It is a principle that flows even to the New Testament. He now lives in us and we're to be separated unto him in such a way. Look at verse 5. We see another second principle presented to us. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head. Until the days be fulfilled and the which he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy and shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. Hallelujah. We can have long hair now, man. No, that's not what it says. Okay, sorry to burst your bubble. <laughs> It's not a commendation for men to have long hair. We know what the, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Excuse me. Here's, here's the principle. Let me back up. A separation from worldly concern for one's reputation. A, a separation from one's worldly concern for one's reputation. We'll explain a little bit and expound upon it. But let's understand the, the verse. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's New Testament principle. Uh, we are not as men to have long hair. And it ought to be, we, we often say this, there ought to be not only in our, in our dress, but in also how we present ourselves a gender difference. Now, the world is doing what it can to, to meld those together. To erase the gender differences, the difference between a lady and a man. But I'll tell you, God created them man and woman, male and female. And until he changes his mind, there ought to be a distinction. How we dress and how we look. And this is one of the ways. So it's not a huge deal, but it's something, a principle of scriptures. What does it say? Well, it's reproach for him. Literally, it is a shame. So what was the meaning? Well, why did a Nazarite have to have long hair then? What was the point? Well, the point is simply this. Think about it. That long hair was a visible representation to other people of one's willingness to bear reproach and shame for God. See, in context, you walk around, you see a Jew, Jew with long hair, and you're like, wow, you know what? That means he's a Nazarite. He doesn't mind taking shame and reproach on himself because he's separating himself unto God. It was a powerful statement. And here's another truth. It wasn't that for the rest of their life they let their hair grow. No, in fact, if you read the verse carefully, it said, notice it if you will, until the days be fulfilled. So it was a short-term representation to the rest of the Jews. It was a proclamation, a declaration. Wow, there is somebody who in their life, they want to be separated unto God. They're not concerned about people thinking, they're, oh, well, they ought to be ashamed. What a reproach to them. It was not about them. It was all about God. They would gladly bear reproach. They would gladly suffer for their dedication, their separation unto God. Now, I'll tell you, my friend, it's a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us in true humility and obedience. I love what Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 said, speaking of Christ, but made himself of no reputation. It did not become about Jesus Christ. It became, it became about you and I gaining heaven. 
He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And my friend, that death of the cross is what's most precious to you and I. That purchased salvation for you and I. He humbled himself. He, he took no reputation for him. He humbled him. And men spitting upon him and degrading him and beating him. My, what a statement. And so here is part of the Nazarite vow. It was a, a proclamation or a declaration that, that I, I don't mind suffering for God. I don't mind taking shame on him. So people know that I am dedicated, committed. I am separated unto God. As I said, it was for a, a short season. Look at verse 18 of the same chapter. Notice the description that we have for us in this passage. And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall take the hair of the head of his separation and put it in the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. So this was part of it. He'd get to the end of those days, however long that was afforded and accounted unto him. He'd shave his head and would take that hair as a representation. And what do you do? He'd throw it in the fires of the sacrifice. A perfect picture that he said, hey, I'm willing to go through shame. Uh, for God, I, I'm willing to make myself of no reputation. People may look at me, and in that day, they look at somebody with long hair, and what is his problem if they didn't think about the Nazarite vow right away? And here he was, willing to take reproach. That long hair was temporary. It was a symbol of his willingness to suffer reproach for God. And my friend, there is ample application for you and I today of the principle. What's the world all about? Well, the world is all about making a reputation for yourself. It's all about making sure that you're number one, to make a name for yourself. Uh, we are told, become a celebrity. Have your five minutes of fame. Become a YouTube uh, sensation. That's what the world tells us. Make sure people know your name. To say that this world adheres to a philosophy that this life is all about you is a gross understatement. Um, and as I have often said to you, I think Burger King is the poster child. Have it your way right away. It's all about you. That's the world's philosophy. That they, they say, hey, your reputation is the most important thing. Can I tell you as a Christian, you soon understand that if I'm separated unto God, it's not all about me, it's all about Him. It's all about His reputation, how He looks in other people's eyes through my life and my living. The Christian's not called to make a name for herself. He's called to spread the name of Christ. It's counterculture to preach and teach that we must be ready and willing to suffer reproach for the kingdom of Christ. It does not sit well with flesh in this world to say that we must die to self, that we must put the name of Christ and the cause of Christ before ourselves. To separate yourself from this thinking and uh, rather strive to be a person of humility will do what? It'll make you stick out. If you strive to say, okay, I'm going to separate myself unto God. It's not all about me. I don't have to make a name for myself. I just want to spread his name. I want to leave a good taste in people's mouth for him. When you say that, it's going to make you stick out. You're going to be different than most of the world. You're going to separate from seeking your own. You're going to separate from making it all about you. It will identify you as someone who is set apart unto the Savior who himself knew all about humility. So let me ask you this this evening. Whose reputation are you most concerned about? Yours or Jesus Christ? Whose reputation did you defend more? 
See, if someone were to sully your good name, if, if a co-worker or a family member was to defame you to others, if they were to attack you in a group of people, how quickly would you jump to the defense? How quickly would you say, hey, don't talk about me like that. Hey, you shouldn't say those things about me. But when a person takes your God's name in vain, how quickly do you defend his reputation? When someone says or says something about God and questions that there is no God, how quickly do you jump to his defense? See, the simple question is this. If I'm separated unto God, it's not about my reputation. It's about his. I care what people think of my God. And I will deny myself and I will live in such a way to enhance and to proclaim his name, not mine. And my friend, that goes against the world. That goes against our flesh. It goes against everything that is in this carnal old nature. I like what Andrew Murray said about humility, and I'll share it with you and we'll be done this evening. Notice it. He said this about humility. Uh, the first statement I love especially. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. Notice this. Great description. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. That's a great description. He goes on, though. Notice this. He says, this is where it comes from. This is where that humility is developed. And he explains it this way. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. Man, I love that description. So you and I are called to be separated unto God. And part of that separation unto God is to live humbly. To not care about the world's push to make a reputation for ourselves, but to make a reputation for God and to live humbly. Can I tell you this? Samson is a good example to some degree in these truths. He was for a time separated from the world's empty sources of joy. And he was separated from the world's ultimate pursuit of personal reputation. Can I ask you this evening, Christian, are you separated in these ways? Are you separated? Are, are there things in your life that we might call a stimulant? Uh, something in your life that you have taken from the world and you have said, okay, I want peace and I want joy and I want happiness. And, and boy, that infomercial, that thing here of the world says, I need that to be happy. And you bought into it. You bought into the world's philosophy. Could I encourage you that being separated into God means you and I are separated from that th kind of thinking? How about it tonight? What is it? What's in your life? Oh, I've got to have that. If I don't have that new truck, if I don't have this, if I, if I don't possess this, if I'm not doing that, then I can't be happy. That is the lie of the devil. And it's a wrong philosophy of this world and that you and I are called to separate from that thinking. Can I tell you, as Samson didn't walk with God, he started to believe some of that. He started to live a life in which he pursued some of those things. And what did it lead to? Tragedy and captivity. And it will do the same for you, Christian. It will do the same for you. Have you bought in tonight to this idea, the wrong teaching, that you and I have to build a reputation for ourselves, that we have to look out for us, number one? How about it, Christian? Whose reputation do you defend more? You'll read the story of Samson as we go on and you'll find out that Samson came to a point where he wasn't defending God. He was defending Samson more. 
He cared more about his reputation than he did God's. And my friend, when you start doing that, that's to live like the world. And it leads to tragedy and captivity. How about it, friend? How do you and I need to separate unto our God this evening?